Thank you for downloading this message from Roots Community Church. We pray that you are encouraged by the word. If you're looking for more information, please visit us at rccphoenix.com. So we're going to wrap up on the last four verses of Philippians this week. And we're going to, what we've been doing is that if you missed the first few weeks, I want you to go back on the podcast or, you know, on YouTube or Facebook and catch the, the last several messages because it's something new that we've done. And it's been, and God has been giving us some great, great stuff uh, in the middle of the first chapter of Philippians. And so, um, but there's going to be two points tonight, only two. So all you people who like short messages are going to be let down because they're really long. I'm just kidding. <laughs> so only two, uh, two points for tonight. We're going to end uh, reading first, I mean Philippians chapter 1, verse 27, and then the second point will be 28 through 30. So number one, first line in your notes is citizens of heaven. Citizens of heaven. You can read along uh, on your notes. I'll ring it out loud in your hearing the, the scripture. Above all, you must live as citizens of heaven, conducting yourselves in a manner worthy of the good news about Christ. Then whether I come and see you again or only hear about you, I will know that you are standing together with one spirit and one purpose, fighting together for the faith, which is the good news. As I was getting into my study this week, I looked at that phrase, citizens of heaven, and I did a little bit of digging on it. And this word, citizen, I put the, I put the word, the original word for, um, Paul uses it multiple times throughout um, his, his epistles. But this word, citizen, when he talks about citizenship, I wrote the word down there because I cannot pronounce it. It's, uh, it looks like polite uma, but I'm, I guarantee you that's wrong. That is the southern redneck in me coming out. Um, but it's that word right there in your notes. And it means this, the administration or constitution of a commonwealth... And the second definition is a form of government and the laws by which it is administered. So then I looked at that word commonwealth, and I thought, man, that sounds familiar to me because I've heard uh, things like the commonwealth of Virginia, you know what I mean? Or some of these older states, you know, the original states in the union, they, they refer to themselves as the commonwealth of, you know, fill in the blank. And so I'm like, let me dig in a little bit deeper and figure out what a commonwealth is. Well, the definition of commonwealth is a group of people organized under a single government. So when Paul is saying that we are citizens of heaven, he is saying that believers in Christ are organized under heaven's single government. We're organized under heaven's single government. See, our government in the United States, and if you're watching this from another country, I won't apply to you, but here in the U.S., our government is a democratic republic. But in, um, in heaven, our government, it's next line in your notes, is a theocracy. If you're wondering what theocracy means, a theocracy is we are ruled by God. He is the one in charge. We didn't vote him in. We can't vote him out. He is not representing us. He is representing himself to us. He is giving us directions from his throne room as God, the one who created everything in charge. He is running the show for us as believers in Christ because we're citizens of heaven. So our government is a theocracy. We are under the most righteous and Holy Father in heaven. I want you to think about that just for a second. I want you to think about what that means. Your king is your father. 
your king is not distant. He is not, I don't know anybody in the world who can walk right up and knock on the front door of the White House right now and go see the president, right? Like he, he might be taking a nap. He might, you know, who knows what he's, what, what he's been doing. You know, he might be on a call with foreign leaders. He might be, we don't know what's going on, but we can't, there's no way in the world we're going to get past security, walk up to the front gate, knock on the door and be like, hey, can I talk to Joe real quick? That's not going to happen. There is a huge distance between the people and the one who's been elected as our representative. There's a massive difference. There is a high probability that most of us will go our entire life, regardless who the president is, and never physically, personally have a one-on-one meeting with them. That is the exact polar opposite of what happens when your king is not some elected representative. He is your dad. When your dad is in charge, when your father is in charge, the most holy, perfect God, when he's the one in charge, you have some rights and some privileges that are not extended to people who are not his kids. He is just, he is fair, but there is a moment of favor. There is a level of favor that is on you you as his children. So we could stop right now and just sila, which means to stop and think about all the ramifications of the king is our dad and our dad is the king. That right there could end the message and we could leave here and wrap our mind around it multiple times this week and still not come to the full grasping of the understanding that he is available to you Every single moment of the day. You don't, we talked about this before, you don't have to go make an appointment with the CEO of heaven. You walk up to your dad's door and knock on it, and he goes, Hey, it's my boy, it's my girl, it's my son, it's my daughter. Come right in. Let's all of this stop. What do you need? We are to approach the throne of grace boldly in our time of need. So we're walking up, not talking to some distant king who's just out there in the ether who made us and then left. He left us to find all the answers on our own. No, his spirit is with you, and that spirit doesn't communicate anything that the Father hasn't already said to the spirit to communicate to you. So your dad is the king. That's who the king is. There should be an assurance and a little bit of swagger, honestly, when you go, my dad's the king. My dad's the king. Say something. Mess with me. My dad is the king. We, as people who live in this country, next line in your notes, we may hold citizenship of a nation here on earth, but as believers in Christ, we hold a higher citizenship. We hold a higher citizenship. I was raised in the South. Like, when I say in the South, I, like, I'm, I don't mean, like, somewhere down close to the South, like... We weren't the belt buckle, because that's Texas of the Bible belt, but we were that sweaty back part of the belt, like in Florida, like the gross part, like we were just down there in the south. <clears throat> we were, it was humid all the time, and, and when we sweat or when we cut ourselves, we bled red, white, and blue. Like it was America first on everything. It was the U.S. It was, you know, God, country, and sometimes, and football, right? Like faith, family, and football, or God, country, and football. And sometimes those orders were switched, depending on if it was the 4th of July or not, right? And so 
I, we bled red, white, and blue. We had people in our family who were military, and I am wildly thankful for the, 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 um, the freedoms that we have here in the United States, but there's a problem if we bleed red, white, and blue as believers. We should bleed God's word. Our loyalty has to change. We cannot put the love of country above the love of God, and we cannot mix those two up to say they're the same thing. They are not. Am I saying abandon the country? No. We have the greatest freedoms anyone's ever had in human history. We have to be grateful for those. We have to participate. We have to be involved. We have to speak out. But our allegiance, our loyalty is to a higher citizenship than the one that we hold here on earth because America is going to go on when you're gone if it makes it that long. Eventually, it will run its course the way every other nation in history has. And what's going to happen is your eternal security is not in the United States of America. It is in the citizenship of heaven where your dad is the king. Does that mean if you have a higher citizenship that other people who don't have that same citizenship, they aren't believers in Christ, are below you? No. That means that we operate by the rules of heaven and we become servants of God and loving those people so that they will have the opportunity to become citizens of, the, of heaven, a higher citizenship just like us. It does not put us in a position to look down. Oh, goodness, Lord, who are these scrubs? Like, I don't know why arrogant people are British in my mind, but they always come out that way, right? Like, it's like, oh, gosh. You know, I heard a comedian say, like, a British person, when they see an American, you know, walk in, it's like you just walked in with a bag of garbage in their jewelry store. Oh, can I help you? You know what I mean? Like, it's, so that's, that's kind of how I view it. Sorry, it's just, that's a joke for, just for me. Um, but there, there's a citizenship that's higher, and it doesn't mean that you're worth more than the people who are not citizens of heaven. It means that we still have work to do to populate heaven and enroll them in that citizenship greater than here. Next line in your notes, believers in Christ are citizens of heaven and ambassadors on earth. We're citizens of heaven and ambassadors on earth. How do I know that? Paul, talking in the book of 2 Corinthians 5, 20 and 21. It's in your notes. So we are Christ's ambassadors. Listen to what that means. God is making his appeal through us. We speak for Christ when we plead, come back to God. For God made Christ, who never sinned, to be the offering for our sin, so that we could be made right with God through Christ. So we know what a citizen is. We are someone, as believers in Christ, who are under the governmental authority of God and his authority and what he wants for us is lined out in his word. Done. That is our quote-unquote constitution. That's what we operate by as believers in Christ. But he goes a step further and says you're not only citizens, you're ambassadors. Ambassadors live in another country but move to a different country to represent the country they come from to the country they're living in. That's what an ambassador's job is. 
they are a citizen of somewhere else, but they come to a nation that they're not a citizen of to represent that nation to these people. As Christ ambassadors, your next line in your notes, Christ ambassadors live as citizens of heaven who represent heaven to the world. We cannot go, oh, I'm in the door, citizenship, yay for me. Yeah, I take the pledge and all that kind of stuff. I gave my life to Christ. I'm in the door, yes. But when you're a citizen of heaven, you are now an ambassador representing the things of God, the things of heaven, the citizenship of heaven to the people here on earth because this place is not your home. It is a temporary residence for you and your eternity will be secure with your king, who's your dad. Colossians 3, 1 through 2. Matt, you're telling me I got to turn my attention away from all the stuff that's down here? Yes. Colossians 3, 1 through 2. Since you have been raised to new life with Christ, set your sights on the realities of wealth? No. Set your sights on the realities of abundance? No. Set your sights on the realities of heaven, where Christ sits in the place of honor at God's right hand. Think about the things of heaven, not the things of earth, for you died to this life, and your real life is hidden with Christ in God. That means that the same concerns that people who are only citizens here have are different from the concerns that citizens of heaven have. There's a difference. I saw a funny meme the other day. I tried to find it, um, but I I didn't have it in time to show you. But it said this, um, (laughs) um, uh, proud citizen of the United States, dot, 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 until Texas secedes. Until Texas secedes, right? Like until they step out of the union. What this person is saying is they're happy to be a part of the U.S., but their ultimate loyalty resides with Texas. If you ever known anybody from Texas, or if you lived there for, you know, maybe three years or something, you would know everyone who lives there believes this is true. If you're living from Texas, just give it a shout out in the comment and you're watching it later. But, um, Believers in Christ are grateful to be earthly citizens here because we have freedom, but our ultimate loyalty resides somewhere else. In the same way the meme was saying, oh, the United States is where I'm at, but Texas is where my loyalty is. The United States is where we are. The earth is where we are, but our loyalty remains true to where Christ is. And we keep our mind and our focus and our filter and our goal propelled, our purpose defined by what needs to happen from that angle, not here. That simple concept can wreck your life in a good way. Because it can change everything you've been pursuing. I'm not saying that we don't need to vote or not be involved or not do our part in researching candidates and go to the ballot box. We have to do all that. We have a responsibility. But our hope is not in who wins the race of our, to being our representatives, regardless if it's the person you like or not. 
our hope remains in Christ and his word. Because we got bigger issues than this nonsense right here. Why should our ultimate loyalty reside there? It's because um, a nation can pass whatever laws they want, regardless if they're contrary to Scripture. But when our ultimate loyalty resides to he in heaven above any politician, political party, government, or country, when our loyalty remains there, next line in your notes, just because something's legal doesn't mean it's right. Just because something is legal doesn't mean it's right. We can go throughout history and look at the governments of the world who had wild, crazy, um, distorted uh, views of what they would allow and the, the death rate, the killing, the murder that would happen. See, the United States can pass whatever laws they want to outside of our approval or not but we've got a higher mandate to follow because we have a higher citizenship than what we have here. The truth is our culture and the country that we live in is growing increasingly hostile to the gospel. Why? Because people will dare to articulate that scripture will not allow someone just to do whatever they feel. I can't be true to me. I feel this way. Mm -mm. Nope. Not if you're going to follow him and take citizenship there. You can here. If you're, if you're saying, I'm never, no citizenship in heaven for me, hey, that breaks my heart, but go do what you're going to do. But if you're going to say, I am going to follow God, I am going to take up my cross, deny myself, and follow him because that's part of our citizenship for heaven. How dare we talk about restraint, denying yourself, and saying that any type of behavior I want to do is wrong. We saw this on display last week. Hopefully you didn't watch it. I didn't. I heard a lot about it because it was a lot of talk this week, but we saw it on display at the Grammys last week. Talked about this in youth on Friday. It was crazy. If you missed it, don't go watch it. Um, but here's what I, you can derive from that, what I just watched and what's going on in our culture is this. It's the next line of your notes. The clear goal of the new American culture is to make sin public and religion private. The clear goal of the new American culture is to make sin public and religion private private when it used to be the other way around. I'm not talking about going back to the good old days. Mm -mm. I'm talking about making a stand now because you're not a citizen here first. You're a citizen there above everything else. When we talk about standing up 
and doing stuff and speaking up and, and, and not just letting things go by the wayside, there is a tendency, there would have been a ten, I'm sure it's not in you, but let me just speak to the old Matt. Um, there was a tendency in the younger, aggressive Matt where I'd be like, oh, let's get him. And I would go and headhunt people who said stupid stuff online, who posted dumb Facebooks, who, who you know, gave some 30-second dissertation on how Jesus was a racist on a TikTok. That drove, drove me nuts this week. Um, all of that stuff, all of that garbage, it makes me, the old Matt, when I hear, like, we got to stand up for the gospel. I'm a citizen of heaven. I'm not going to stand for this. It makes me want to get my thumbs ready. Let's come on, buddy. Let me, start, let me start sending messages. Let me start messaging you. Take this nonsense down. This is garbage. Let me show you why. And it makes you want to just go, let me shut those guys up. Not you, me. But Paul gives stipulations for exactly how we're supposed to act as citizens of heaven. In the back half of that verse, after he tells us where our citizenship is, he says, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the good news about Christ. Had to put my phone down after that one. Had to close the social media apps that I wanted to launch in the tirades on people after that one. Standing together with one spirit and one purpose, fighting together for the faith, which is the good news. How do we conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of the good news about Christ? Well, what is the good news about Christ? A perfect, sinless life. His death on the cross. His burial three days in a borrowed tomb and resurrection from the dead, providing us a way to be reconciled to God through him. That is the good news. And everything that comes out of our mouth as citizens and ambassadors has to reflect that well. That changes my approach and it changes my language. It changes the angst in me. It changes the, the frustration, and it dies down because I'm not supposed to be acting like that. Paul makes it real clear. So how do we conduct ourselves in a way that is counted worthy of the good news? Next few bullet points in your notes. We speak the truth in love. A lot of people want to drop the truth bomb. Well, I just got to say it straight to you. I just got to tell you the truth. And then go to a, a, annihilating people. Mm -mm. Speak the truth in love. The next line. We correct misconceptions about the gospel. In love. You don't know the Bible. You didn't even crack that open. You got that scripture off of CNN somewhere. Some guy twisted it and took it out of the place. You know, some guy who wrote in the religion opinion section online. Let me, I'm, I'll tell you what it means. You don't even know. Mm -mm. That doesn't represent Christ and the good news of the gospel. We treat others as we want to be treated. It's the next line in your notes. In love. We forgive in love. Matt, I thought forgiveness is a loving act. Uh, yeah, until you go, oh, I got to forgive you, so you're forgiven. Get away from me. No one's ever done that. I'm sure it's only been me, right? 
you have to forgive in love. We tell the story of our salvation in love. Why is it important to draw a distinction between the citizens of heaven and the citizens of earth? Because the citizens of earth promote greed, selfishness, pride, fame, jealousy, envy, and sexual deviancy. Romans makes that real clear. But citizens of, he of heaven promote generosity, selflessness, humility, grace, compassion, love, mercy, and morality. See the difference? As believers in Christ, we have a dip different way to operate because we're citizens of heaven, which is higher than the citizens of where we are on earth. Constitution of the United States is a governing document establishing and identifying our freedoms for all mankind, all human beings created by God. That was the intent. But our governing document is his word. That's our governing document. Why do we keep telling everyone who comes here, don't just take my word for the message. Go home, read the scriptures, read the whole chapters, pray on it. Start to, uh, to think about the things that have implications on the things that are presented here. Why are we telling you, don't just take my word for it, but go open your Bible, read the scriptures on, in your print or app if you're under 30, and find out exactly what they're saying. Why? Because if we don't know God's word... We don't know how we're supposed to act as citizens of heaven and what we're supposed to represent to the world. Everybody in here has a pretty good idea of the majority of the laws in this country, right? Got a pretty good idea. I probably can't do that. You know, I feel gray area on this one. I'm going to hire a high-priced lawyer to get me out of this one, but that one, whew, I'm up a creek if I do that. Everybody's got a pretty good idea of that, right? We have to hide God's word in our hearts so we don't sin against him. And so we present the truth of the gospel to the people who need it, who aren't yet citizens. How are we supposed to know how to act if we don't know the governing book? I wrote a reflection question for you guys. When you take these home, you can look at it later this week and ask a question maybe in your prayer time or maybe have a family discussion. Have I accepted anything from our culture that Scripture says I should reject? Have I accepted anything from our culture that Scripture says I should reject? And if we have... You're human, first of all. But if you have, that means that we have fallen prey to prioritizing the citizenship here over the citizenship of eternity. And we got to reprioritize those things. Point number two <clears throat> don't be intimidated. Don't be intimidated. 
Philippians chapter 1, 28 through 30, the last three verses of, the, of this, this scripture, of this chapter. Paul says, don't be intimidated in any way by your enemies. This will be a sign to them that they're going to be destroyed, but that you are going to be saved even by God himself. For you have been given not only the privilege of trusting in Christ, but also the privilege of suffering for him. We are in this struggle together. You have seen my struggle in the past, and you know that I am still in the middle of it. When Paul says, do not be intimidated by your enemies, there are two groups of people that he's talking about. Letter A in your notes. Physical enemies. Physical enemies. The reason this is important, because I want you to remember who Paul's writing to, it's the church in Philippi. Philippi was established as a city for who? Anybody remember? Huh? Retired Roman soldiers. The city was established for retired Roman soldiers to leave the service of Rome and go live together. They are in a heavily influenced city of soldier and military background. That's who he's talking to. It would be easy to feel intimidated if all the people I was around every day were hardened soldiers. Especially soldiers who are not like the ones we have today who are fighting for our freedom. They were fighting for, to keep you in line. They were conquering. They were um, in occupying territories. They became the oppressor in many scenarios. They didn't believe in freedom of speech like we have here or used to. They don't believe in those same principles of the sanctity of life and, and the, 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 the freedom to be able to do and say what you want and to practice um, your religion or your faith the way that you want to without being persecuted for it. All of those things did not apply to Rome, and all of these people knew it because they helped carry out those laws and in some instances executions and in some instances crucifixions. They were hardened soldiers, and Paul is telling these Christian believers, when you go and talk to these guys, don't be intimidated. Right. Let's look at just how difficult that is. I put this, um, it's your next line in your notes, but in the Holman Bible Dictionary, he, um, they talk about the role and the job of Pilate. Everybody remember who Pilate is? Pilate is the one who said, I find no fault with this man when he was talking about Jesus. And he said, you know, I'll, I'm going to wash my hands, go do with them whatever you want. That's Pilate. Remember the story? Look at what Holman's Bible Dictionary talks about historically was Pilate's job. Pilate's first priority was public order. Public, or Pilate's first priority was public order, not the execution of justice. Pilate held the supreme administrative life or death power over the subjects of a providence or a people who lived in his area of control. 
in the eyes of Pilate's superiors, his bosses, the trial of Jesus was not irresponsible. Why? Because if a Galilean peasant was the focal point of a civil disturbance, the quelling of that disturbance, not the justice for the person involved, was the utmost concern for Roman officials fearful of revolts in occupied provinces. Their job was to keep the peace, not provide justice. These soldiers who lived in Philippi operated in that understanding. Next line in your notes. People in the Roman Empire had regularly seen their government officials punish, imprison, and murder people for going against the cultural beliefs. This was a form of intimidation. If you were the leader of somebody causing a commotion to try to tell people that Pilate or the emperor wasn't God and he wasn't deity and Jesus is the only way to heaven and people started getting upset and getting mad and having public arguments at the public square and people were, were talking about you and screaming and yelling and hollering, Pilate's job was not to make sure your right, rights were preserved. His job was to make sure there was peace and calm and everybody go back home and then I made it through another day. He had no no, no responsibility. He had no inkling to preserve justice for you. He wanted to keep calm, so he kept his position. How difficult and intimidating would it have been for anyone in that city to stand up and say, I am a believer in Christ, and he's the only way to heaven. He is the only one that is divine, and the emperor and the pilot and whoever else you guys have, uh, have, have in the Praetorian Guard have followed, all of those guys, uh, they're just people, and they shouldn't be worshipped. How difficult would it be to say that in that culture? It would have been insane. Paul and, and then Paul doesn't just say, don't be intimidated. He says, don't be intimidated in any way. <laughs> Thanks, Paul. How's it going in prison over there? I'm stuck over here with these military guys. Okay, thanks for the history lesson, Matt. How's that apply to us? Next on your notes. We need to prepare for the negative reactions of our culture when we defend and speak up for the gospel. I'll go back to a, a note that I missed earlier because I think this is very important. The church works best when it stands against the culture. The church works best when it stands against the culture. So what I'm telling you is we see the decline of, of um, the acceptance of what Scripture says in our culture. We need to prepare what do I mean by prepare? I need freeze-dried foods and an AR-15. No, no. The AR-15 would be cool just to own, right? Like if you got one of those and want to swap it out, just, I mean, just bring it to me. I'd be, I'd be happy to hold on to it. Um, but I'm not talking about doing that. That's a whole different type of preparation. What I'm saying is we need to be ready to count the cost for what it's going to mean to share the gospel 
in the future because it's going to get harder. And not just harder because people will be like, get away from me with that, with that Jesus stuff. No, they're going to look at you and think you are attacking them because you present the truth of Christ. It's not a question of if it will, if it might happen, it's going to. I always have to take a step back in moments like this and go, don't, I'm not telling you to do something stupid. I'm not telling you to walk in to your job who had you do some cultural training and kick over the security desk when you walk into the cubicle tomorrow and be like, I quit! Ah! You know, this is not about God and walk out. I'm not telling you to do that. That's not what I'm telling you. What I am saying is that there is an antichrist sentiment rising in our nation and around the world. And we need to be prepared to, be, to stand up, be counted as citizens of heaven, ambassadors for Christ, and not be intimidated. Letter B. I did not do good with this one this week. God gave me the message or the idea of it early in the week and later in the week. I wish I would have remembered it, and I did not. So this one ain't just for y'all. It's for me as well. All of this is for me as well. <clears throat> um, but letter B is this, spiritual enemies. The second group of enemies is spiritual enemies. Matt. Are you telling me? Are you about to get weird on me, bro? You gonna start talking about the unseen world and demons and all that kind of stuff? And I saw poltergeist. That freaked me out. Are you gonna talk about it? No. Nope. That's not what I want to do. But I want to wake you up to the reality of that. What you, if all you see is what you see, you don't see everything. Ephesians six ten through twelve. This is Paul talking to a different church of believers. A final word. Be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on all of God's armor so you will be able to stand firm against the strategies of the devil. Listen close. We are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, but against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world, against mighty powers in this dark world, and against evil spirits in heavenly places. Matt, you just said that there were physical enemies. This says we're not fighting against flesh and blood. If you feel resistance from a physical enemy, it is because they are being influenced or manipulated by a spiritual enemy. This is the root of the problem. <clears throat> so, how do we know, how are some ways that we know that our spiritual enemy is resisting us or fighting against us? There's six little bullet points I want to quickly touch on real quick. Because we have thoughts that undermine God's word. That prayer you're praying doesn't work. You thought it was going to and nothing's happened. That prayer don't work for you. It might work for somebody else, but he don't hear you. Too much sin in your life, too far gone. 
too much disobedience. Those thoughts that undermine God's word are from your spiritual enemy. The next one. Did God really say? Did God really say he was going to protect you? Did God really say that your inheritance is in him? Did God really say that if you ask in faith, believing whatever you ask of, according to his will, is going to come to pass? Because you've been asking for a long time, bro, and it ain't happened. Did God really say that? Did you pray and the Spirit of God so overwhelmingly showed you and confirmed to you that what you've been praying for is going to happen and you've been sitting here for years with that prayer unanswered? Did he really say that or was that just you talking to you? Third thing, intimidating thoughts. Fourth, mocking thoughts. It may even be a person who you're dealing with who mocks what you believe. Irrational fears, including thoughts of death. Why do I say irrational fears? Because here's why. Let me tell you why. Let me, let me give you a, a good example of the, dis, of the dis, discrepancy. Got a lot of parents in the room. Um, if you have a protective instinct in you, not if you do, you do have a protective instinct in you as a parent. And if your child made a beeline to Bell Road out there in the middle of traffic, you would panic, drop everything you did, and run after them. Why? I don't, want to, I don't want to get hurt. I have a fear that something bad is going to happen to them. That is a rational type of fear. Let me give you an irrational fear. You're going to come home tonight, and you're going to find your child has killed themselves and left you here alone. that thought. Well, Matt, people who are not believers have that as well. Yes. And it all comes from the same place. Um, next time your phone rings, it's the police officer with the coroner telling you your husband is gone. Irrational fear. Completely different level including thoughts of death. 2014, I think, no, 2013. I've been working my job that I hated, that God provided for me, and I still hated. It's another story for another day. Um, for about a year and a half. And I just was devastated by some things that happened in our life ministry-wise. I wasn't in ministry. I'm working in corporate America. wasn't doing what my calling was. I had relationships that I thought I could trust that were wounded and fell apart and relationships I was wounded that God restored you know like it was just a crazy emotional time for me and I was very down on myself because I was in a place providing for our family but it wasn't a, it wasn't much we were getting by and I was grateful for it we had lost everything we had and God helped us get back on our you know open the door for us to get back on our feet and I wasn't having thoughts of anything really except for, I don't like this job, I don't want to go back tomorrow. Oh, it's all right. 
I'm going to go back tomorrow. <laughs> I like eating. I'm going to go back tomorrow. <clears throat> so I got home, and Nina was cooking dinner. And uh, she needed me to help her in some way, like chop onions or some veggie or something. So I remember very specifically, I opened the drawer, and I pulled out the knife, big old huge butcher knife. And before I could shut the door, I got rushed for about 30 seconds out of the blue with this thought. Accidentally fall on that knife and then end your life and your, your wife and your child will be far better off with the insurance money than what you're able to do because you're a failure trying to keep them afloat right now. And I remember not it being a passing thought, but this, what? I wasn't in the middle of having a suicidal thought spree. It hit me out of the blue. Irrational thoughts of death, where is that from? It's from our enemy, our spiritual enemy. The last one is ideas of self-sufficiency. I don't need God. I got this whole thing wired. I don't want to come back to your dumb church anyway. I don't like half the people there. I only go because I'm forced to. Um, I married somebody who wants to do this, and so I just come. Fine. My parents made me come. <laughs> I hate it. I don't need what you're saying because I can do it on my own thoughts from your spiritual enemy. <clears throat> the, last thing, um, the, the last thing I want to say about this is I want to remind everybody in here, why in the world are we talking about this? Because I want you to be able to identify where your thoughts and feelings are coming from so you know how to fight back. The truth is this. I've experienced this 100% assured I've experienced this multiple times in my life. Our spiritual enemy will not fight fair. He will use several of these tactics at the same time. And he doesn't care if you're a child, if you have a mental problem, if you have a physical problem, if you have an emotional problem, if you're dealing with trauma from your past, if you're in the middle of a traumatic scenario, if you are in the middle of a health crisis, he don't care if you're old, if you're married, if you're single, he don't care what economic class you're in, he don't care if you're um, married, he don't care about any of that. At any point in time, he gets grimy. That's the way he operates. Jesus told us the enemy comes to what? Steal, kill, and destroy. But I have come that you might have life and life more abundantly. And that abundant life is not a big old stacked fat bank account and you drive in the most expensive car to show off to your friends. It means that there is an abundance of power and purpose in your life to accomplish his goal, period. And if that comes with a little bit of lettuce, great. But that's not your purpose. Uh, Matt, you said these things work all together at once at the same time. Yeah, let me give you a quick little story in Genesis chapter 3, 
verses 1 through 5, where the enemy used a whole bunch of these things together. The serpent, which is, was being controlled by the enemy, was the shrewdest of all the wild animals that the Lord God had made. One day he asked the woman, did God really say? See it? Did he really say, you must not eat of the fruit from any of the trees in the garden? Of course we may eat fruit from the trees of the garden, the woman replied. It is only the fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden we're not allowed to eat. God said you must not eat it or even touch it. If you do, you will die. You won't die, the serpent replied to the woman. God knows that your eyes will be opened as soon as you eat it, and you will be like God, knowing both good and evil. What did he do? He undermined God's word. He bred seeds of doubt, did God really say. He mocked her. What? No, that's not going to happen. How, why would you think that? No. Ideas of self-sufficiency. You'll be just like him. He doesn't want you to be on the same level playing field as him, and you will have control. You don't need that. See how even in the perfect garden of Eden where sin never existed, he got grimy. He stacked up these temptations, these thoughts, these crazy fears, these mocking thoughts. He stacks them all up at once and unloads them all at the same time. He doesn't fight fair. But the good news is this. Next line of your notes. We are not at the mercy of our spiritual enemy. Your boys got to stand up for this one. We are not at the mercy of our spiritual enemy. Because um, I don't know about you, but if the God who has all of the power and all of the universe walks in the room, it's not a fair fight. And since your dad is that God and your dad is the king, then guess what? When he shows up, the fight is over. The enemy doesn't fight fair with you. He fights grimy. He comes at the worst opportune times. He's going to try to find the way to pierce closest to your heart and make it bleed. And he's going to try to twist the knife if he ever gets it in there. But I am telling you that when your almighty God, your heavenly father, the king of where we are citizens of in heaven, steps in the room, he's got all power. And guess what? That unfair fight just flipped in his favor. When he shows up, the fight is never fair because he's never lost. He's never lost. We are not at the mercy of our spiritual enemy. I wish I would have remembered that this week. It would have saved me several nights of 3 a.m. tossing in the bed. It has saved me tears laying against my truck in an empty parking lot begging God, asking questions. Yeah, that was me this week. I wish I would have remembered what he equipped me with before I walked into it. And if you are someone who's sitting in this room tonight and you're like, man, I'm not facing any of that, I want you to remember when you do that you are not at the mercy of that spiritual enemy because your God has all the power. Then he lets you in on the fight. 
the God who has never lost, who's never ran a play that didn't score, who's never lost yardage, who's never been sacked, who's never been driven back, that God now says, hey, I want you to participate here real quick. So letter B. Oh, no, I'm sorry. Letter A. The first thing we have to do is identify the author of the thoughts that we have. 2 Timothy 2.7. For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and a sound mind. So any thought that breeds you into an irrational fear is not from is not from your king, is not from your father. It comes from your spiritual enemy. So you can push that right aside because the thoughts and the things that God gives you are full of power, of love, and a sound mind. And I'm not, when I talk about power, I'm not talking about control. I'm talking about the Holy Spirit being active in you to be able to accomplish things you can't do on your own. 2 Corinthians 10, 3 through 4. We are human but we don't wage war as humans do. We use God's mighty weapons, not worldly weapons, to knock down the strongholds of human reasoning and destroy false arguments. What are those weapons? Letter B. Weapons to fight our spiritual enemy. Weapons to fight our spiritual enemy. Really easy. James 4, 7. Humility and resistance. Wait. I thought humility was that passive thing. I just sat back and didn't take credit for things. It is, but it becomes a weapon. It is so much more. Why? James 4, 7. So humble yourselves before God. Humble is step one. Then resist the devil and he might go away. There's an opportunity for him to exit because he doesn't want to deal with you anymore. No. Resist him. Humble yourself and resist and he will flee. Is it because you have power because you're a little God? No. It is because the spirit of the almighty God is living inside of you. You have been adopted into the family of God. You are now a child of the king, and the king is your dad. And he says, I've never lost. I'm going to work through him, and I'm going to use a broken, flawed, imperfect man to stand and put his foot on the neck of our spiritual enemy. How do we do that? Humility and resisting him. A couple more weapons. Prayer, truth, faith, and salvation. Prayer, truth, faith, and salvation. Well, it's pretty specific, Matt. Why are you saying that? Ephesians 6, 13 through 18. Put on every piece of God's armor so you will be able to what? resist the enemy in the time of evil. Then after the battle, you will be standing firm. Stand your ground, putting on the belt of truth and the body armor of God's righteousness. For shoes, put on the peace that comes from the good news so that you'll be fully prepared. In addition to all of these, hold up the shield of faith to stop the fiery arrows of the devil. Put on salvation as your helmet and take the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Pray in the Spirit at all times and on every occasion. Stay alert and be persistent in your prayers for all believers everywhere. Pray. Oh, what am I doing? Talking to the invisible Santa Claus in the sky? No, you are talking to your dad who's the king of heaven. That's who you're talking to. 
understand his word. When the enemy came to tempt Jesus in the desert, what did he say? Scripture says, the word of God says, Jesus himself used scripture as a weapon against our spiritual enemy. Thoughts of, hey, end your life and let, the, let the, um, uh, the life insurance come to your wife and son and they'll be in a better spot because you're failing as a provider. What you do is say no because greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. The scripture says that God has come to give us life and life more abundantly and your end leads to death. This end leads to life. I think I'm going to stick around here a little bit and let him use this weak, flawed, imperfect man to kick your tail for a little while longer truth not your truth not somebody else's truth the truth of the gospel is your weapon salvation protects your head I can't stop the thoughts that keep pounding in my head. Have you given your life to Christ? Truly. Because that salvation protects your head. Not being intimidated by our physical or spiritual enemies is a sign to them that the enemies of God will be destroyed and the children of God will be saved. Those are Paul's words, not mine. When you stand against your spiritual enemy, you are reminding him, hey, sucker, you lose. I'm going to stand here, and whether I live through it or whether I die through it, it makes no difference because at the end of everything, my salvation rests with my king, who is the ruler of where I am a higher citizen of, which is heaven, and he's my father, and he comes back for me, and I spend eternity with him, and I know where your end is. I know where that end is. I am not going to be intimidated when the enemy uses intimidation, fear, and mockery to leave me in a circle that I can't get out of. Those three things work together, by the way. Because if your spiritual enemy can intimidate you into silence and you don't defend the gospel, you don't share your salvation experience, you don't present the life-giving good news to the people who need it, who are only citizens here and not yet citizens of heaven. If we do that and we're intimidated into silence, I guarantee you the thoughts that follow that silence are going to be, see, you don't even really believe. There's no power inside of you. The spirit of God that you said is living inside of you, he's not there. And then you try to push back, and then the fear comes again. And that fear pushes you into a, a, a place of silence because I'm intimidated to, to feel the backlash or to lose relationships or to, to be mocked. And it works in this tandem to dig you a hole that leaves you paralyzed and not fighting back. We have to identify where these things come from and we have to use the tools that are in God's word that he put in our hand, that he put in our heart, and that he put in our mind, and more importantly, put in our mouth to 
to go back at the one who's trying to intimidate us because why? My God, don't lose. I'm wholeheartedly 100% for humility. But when that truth rung my bell, I got a little swagger. I got a little bit of swagger because honestly, I didn't have it. I didn't have it this week. I wish I could tell you I did. Wish I could tell you that I followed the advice and remembered my own message I was preparing for y'all. Dang it. Wish I could tell you that. But you know when I remembered it? This morning. You are not at the mercy of your spiritual enemy. He wants to kick you around like you're only a citizen here. No. You're a true believer in Christ. You got a higher citizenship. You know his playbook, his game is so old. The same tactics, just in details for your life. And he's given you weapons to fight back. So, fight him down. And when you win, Don't stand there and gloat. You go back to the God that you worshiped in the brokenness and kneel before him and say, you are mighty. You can remember the songs from today to God be the glory. And when he throws the parade, it's bigger than the one you threw. Just ride on the float with him and look at all the enemies he's defeated. And if you forgot, keep reading here. Because he doesn't lie. And he don't lose. I left two reflection questions for you at the end of it. You can take home and kind of think about for yourself and pray on a little bit. Have we been intimidated into silence about the gospel in any way? And the second one is this. Have we fought back against our spiritual enemy or do we remain passive? I hope that if you remain passive, that the fire of the Spirit of God will push you to engage once you are equipped with his word.